is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Shauna Coronado, who's an author, a speaker, a photographer, a gardener, and enthusiastic supporter of green living. Shauna, you've been all over TV and radio, and you've got scads and scads of YouTube videos. Welcome to the program. I do. Thank you. Thank you. Such an adventure. I'm a gardener that's gone crazy. (laughs) That's what's happened. Well, now you started. You gardened as a little girl, didn't you? I did. I have. I have a very yours, mine, and ours family, and I had three grandmothers, and all three of them gardened in one form or another. And so, for me, uh, that was just a part of living. When you grow up on a farm in central Indiana, you learn to garden, and there you have it. But then you went to work in the big city, didn't you? I did, and um, I live and work right now near Chicago, and being downtown Chicago, I had no exposure to the basics. You know, there was no gardening. Uh, We barely had grass, and it was really a cement jungle, and for me, emotionally, uh, it, it played poorly on my health, and after many years, like 10 years of working downtown, I started getting ill. And um, the illness was centered on, I have severe allergies and asthma and, uh, oh gosh, the list goes on. But, but the real concern was the stress that I went under when working uh, combined with no exposure to nature, really. I think that was the combination that really brought me down, you know, that brought my health. I was taking over a dozen prescriptions a day. And so my boss called me into the office and wanted me to work extra hours. I flipped out and ended up walking off the job. And on my way home, I called my husband and said, I don't know what we're going to do, dear, but I'm never working that job again. And that was the beginning of doing landscape design and working outside every day that I possibly could. And it absolutely changed my life. I went from taking the dozen prescriptions a day down to two per day, and now I'm down to one. And so it's a good thing. Do you credit that to the physical or the mental or the spiritual? I think I credit it. It's more about just being outside and being in nature. And remember, I'm allergic to everything. I'm allergic to trees. I'm allergic to soil. I'm allergic. (laughs) You know, so it, it doesn't make sense. Why would I feel better? being outdoors, even though I have all these allergies. Well, part of it is I learned how to cope with the allergies and combine that with a gardening regimen and exercise regimen. So I think it's being out in nature first. Exercise is probably lowest on that. And I'll tell you why. I went to my doctor. He was a blood pressure doctor, and uh, that, that was his specialty. And uh, I still take blood pressure medicine, but he said, listen, something's happening to you when you go out in nature. Jesus says it has nothing to do with exercise. It's more about the meditative quality of the experience you're having. That's what's bringing your blood pressure down. And while I still take medicine for it, it's very, very low dose. Uh, So I think that that nature uh, component is really what brings everything together and makes me feel good. I think a lot of people don't know how much they need nature and how connected. And it only makes sense to me because for 
thousands and thousands, well, millennia, people have lived outdoors. They've been hunter-gatherers. They were, you know, doing agriculture. It's only really in the last hundred or so years when we've been so involved in the in the industrial society, and now in the electronic society. Well, not to mention, look at what we're consuming. Holy wow, it's horrible. (laughs) You know, we're eating (laughs) chemicals every day of our lives, and that was something else. When I stopped working at that job, I also looked at the environment of my home. What was I consuming and what was I living with? And my goal began uh, to be, how can I get rid of the chemicals that I have? You know, is it necessary for me to have all these cleaning chemicals in my house? Can I maybe use vinegar instead? Uh, Can I eat organically? Well, what I found out is it can be very expensive to eat all organic. And so uh, why not? uh, I would describe myself as an everyday person. I'm not an extremist. And so my goal uh, then became, why don't I try to make the foods I eat the most organic? And so we go with organic eggs. It's one of our favorite foods. Uh, I grow organic vegetables. And it's really become a goal of mine to get everyday people to see the value of going organic with the primary foods that we eat. And also, I, I think, avoiding the dirty dozen the ones that are yes. most heavily sprayed, and, and buy those organically, even if it does cost a little bit more, because you can't easily wash off, for example, celery that, um, you know, that they spray to death, and it all gets into the bunches of celery, and, and peaches that have to be so heavily sprayed. Oh, peaches and pears. For some reason, I can't even consume them without getting sick. So there's something in the chemical that's used in peaches and pear treatment that really bothers me. And, I, of course, I don't know what it is. None of us do because we're not told what chemicals are sprayed on our plants uh, that, you know, that we consume. But it is something. And um, so there's some plants that I'm not allergic to, per se, but I've learned I just simply can't eat those fruits or vegetables because they make me sick. And I definitely then try to go for the organic, and I don't get as sick. So I think it makes sense to uh, buy wisely. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned you should mention peaches. Uh, for years, I thought I was allergic to peaches, to peach fuzz, and it turned. And I'd always peel them, and it turns out that when I was growing my own, I didn't have any problem. Why? Because apparently I wasn't spraying, and the peaches are raised generally with heavy doses of fungicide because they are so susceptible to mm-hmm. diseases. Be that, and uh, I'm allergic to mold. As well, so things that are overly processed and um, fermented, I get really sick, and cheese and all of that. So my diet plays a role, but I truly think that um, enabling yourself with gardening, uh, going outside, being healthier in your your choices, it makes such a difference in living every day. I feel like I'm really making a difference for myself, and I want my readers and the people who are my fans. I want them to do the same thing. It's good for them. It feels it feels good. And I noticed in your blog that you're very keen on empowering other people to live um, a greener lifestyle and to raise some of their own food. How do you? How are you doing that? And what have your successes been? Well, I have a front lawn vegetable garden, and it's been quite controversial. You know, some people are, oh, how horrible! You have a front lawn vegetable garden, and other people uh, are jumping on the bandwagon and growing their own front lawn vegetable gardens. But I totally eliminated all the grass in my yard. 
That's extreme. I know that. So the average everyday person might want to simply expand their beds more. Instead of having a small garden bed, why not make it a little wider and include some vegetables that are ornamental in that growing process? It's super simple. It really is, and everyone can do it. So that seems to be one of the ways that people are really motivated when they read my stuff um, to change, you know, and try to make a difference for themselves by growing a little extra more. <laughs> and, and as you said, you can just, you know, enlarge an existing bed a little bit and grow up. It doesn't take much to pop in a couple of chards or lettuce or something like that or things that are absolutely gorgeous like um, some of the colored kales and things like that that people can can eat and grow and enjoy. It doesn't have to be tomatoes in a cage. No, exactly. I think that's what we traditionally think of when we think of it as a garden, but it can be fun. Uh, my favorite is kale. Kale comes in purple, blues, chartreuse, kale greens, all different colors, and they are fabulous in both your, your garden as an ornamental and on your plate because it's one of the most uh, full vegetables with vitamins, and we want people to grow those vitamin-rich vegetables because it's much better for your family to eat. It cracks me up. I, you know, 10 or 12 years ago, I think I was the only person in the world eating kale. And now <laughs> just about everybody does. That, that just oh, makes me chuckle. It's my favorite. And I have, I do a recipe that's my absolute favorite. It is kale and Swiss chard, you know, torn up into bits and then mixed with a mustard vinaigrette to die for. It tastes so much better than just a plain old ordinary head lettuce sort of salad. Uh, it's delicious. That Swiss chard brings so much color to the plate, too. I really love it. Do you grow some of the rainbow chards or five color? or you just I do. I do. It, it depends. Um, you know, bright lights is still the classic. You can find almost anywhere. Every nursery that's a garden nursery out there is growing bright lights. It is a rainbow of colors. There's oranges, yellows, uh, pinks, and purples, all a part of that. And um, what I do in the garden is think about the soil. I do not till my garden annually. I grow a tillless garden, and the Swiss chard seems to love that situation. They really love it uh, with added manure, you know, as part of your composting routine to put uh, rotted manure in the garden, and they get huge. I mean, the bright lights will grow three feet, four feet tall. Four feet tall? Four feet tall in my garden. You can measure it. We actually have photos of it this year um, where it was middle of, above my tummy, you know, when I was standing there. And that is amazing. Wow. I, I, hope you'll send, I hope you'll send me a, a picture of that tummy, tummy, tummy height chart, and I will post it on our Facebook page because I don't I think most people are going to believe that. That's, I will. I, 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 will send it I was you. proud of mine when it was a little bit, you know, when it was around knee high, but tummy height, that's amazing. It now, is. Do you, and it's the poop. <laughs> do you worry <laughs> about... Contaminated manure, we've had several guests that have had problems where they've gotten um, horse or cow manure that's been contaminated with long-acting herbicides. 
Absolutely. I think that uh, Joe Lample, who's a good friend of mine, had a mm-hmm. real problem with that in his garden. No, I don't have a problem with that because I buy bagged rotted manure typically. Ah. There's, a, there's a reason for that. When you get fresh manure from a farm and you rot it, uh, first of all, you don't know the ingredients to it. Secondly, you uh, will have all the seeds that go through the animal's bodies deposited in that compost. Uh, which means far more weeding. If you buy bagged rotted manure, what you're getting is cooked manure. It has been heated, so the seeds are dead. Uh, but manure is still alive. It still has microbial properties that are excellent for the garden. And uh, so if I can find something labeled organic rotted manure, I definitely go for it. But I think that the cooking process is a significant step forward when you're talking about manure additions to your garden. Yeah, even though some of the long-lasting, very persistent herbicides will actually come through even after it's been hot composted, unfortunately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, but you're right, you have a much better chance of not having that problem. Exactly, and any compost that you don't make yourself uh, of any kind, there are no guarantees. Um, we'd like to think that there are, but the reality is is that if you don't see the actual process yourself, you just don't know. Um, I say also go with trusted companies. If you have an organic soil company, for instance, that promotes, uh, uh, I want to say, one of the, the worm castings and that sort uh-huh. of thing, uh, you know that they have a process and they open the process up to the public to go see. I think that's really important if you can do that, if you're that dedicated to having organic. Uh, however, uh, just simply having your own compost that you make yourself, then you know what the ingredients are going to be in it. We'll talk. We've got to take a little break right now, but we'll talk a little bit more about that when we come back. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. This is americaswebradio.com. The best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm here with Shauna Coronado, and right before the break, we were talking about compost and how you get the good stuff if you don't make it yourself. And Shauna, you mentioned checking out the place. You know, do you have any tips? Have you have you ever been to one of the compost places and seen how when they move the windrows, steam rises? That is yes. Cool. 
world. Yes, I actually did a tour of a compost facility, and I videotaped it. It was, and you can search it on my website uh, if you if you're interested in seeing a video of what a real compost company looks like that that is making soil. And it's called Touring Organic Mechanics Soil Factory. Let me tell you, that was the funnest. The the manager at the soil factory got very upset with me because I kept referring to the compost as dirt. <laughs> and he's like, this is not dirt. This is soil. It is processed. It is scientifically made. And I'm like, yeah, it looks like dirt to me, you know. And so we had a ball. And the touring of the factory was really fascinating because I never realized, for instance, how many components go into the manufacturing of compost and soil. Uh, it is quite complicated, and the, the microbes are magic, of course. They're the secret to good soil and also to uh, good back soil that you might have. Because if not, like if you plant your containers uh, with soil from last year, it's essentially dead soil because it's not had the opportunity to renew itself like it would if it were in the ground. So many people come to me and say, well, I'm growing a container, but I don't understand. I used the soil from last year, and this year it's just not working for me. Well, it's because uh, depending on what you planted in your container last year, you use all that soil up. And so renewing uh, container soil with fresh compost, uh, or I try to take, I usually take out the top section of it and maybe even mix it back in with some more rotted manure and uh, make my own little uh, magical formula every year. But, it, you know, it's really about keeping your soil fresh and those microbes active. That's what's going to bring you success with your plants. You know what I did back when I lived in an apartment? I wanted to compost, but I didn't have a place to compost, really. So what I would do is I would chop up all my vegetables. This was in the days between before there were food processors. I would chop over, chop up that, you know, the little bits of lettuce leavings and add them to coffee grounds and things like that. And then I would go out to my containers, and I would dig a little hole. I'd use a tablespoon or something. I'd dig a little hole in the potting soil. In the winter, in the fall and winter, and pour that stuff in there, and cover it up. And I would go around the pot, you know, every couple of inches. And then when one pot was done, I would move on to the next pot. And by springtime, when it was time to do the, you know, the tomatoes and stuff after the soil had warmed up, that was wonderfully rich soil. Oh, absolutely. I think that's a great idea. The other thing is compost tea. There's been some controversy about compost tea's effectiveness. So I went and I got Haven brand tea from um, Annie. Annie Haven? Uh, oh, gosh, I love her. She's just adorable. But I went and I, never met I, I, oh, adorable, and I tested her manure tea because I wanted to know, does it really work? And I published the results on my website. So if you search for compost tea, you can see two posts I did on it. One shows how the plants grew, and the other shows what happened when I pulled the roots out of the container. Holy cow. I'm a drought container gal. I do not want to water regularly. So I put everything in the soil I can think of in my container gardens to prevent myself from having to water because <laughs> I'm a lazy water. So my plants always live in drought. They really do. And the container results were amazing. The compost tea, that container showed tiny root systems that were jam-packed 
in the bottom of a container. The other ones I tested had nothing like that. It made me a true believer in the compost tea concept. And um, I say anything that you can do to enhance the microbes in your soil, whether it be container or in ground, that's going to get you a stronger, healthier plant because you're building the root systems. It's really good for your plants. You know, it amazes me that here we are in the 21st century and we have to talk about things that our ancestors knew hundreds of years ago <laughs> before we got all spoiled, you know, with you know the World War II, post-World War II thing and all the chemicals. My grandparents had a farm as did your grandparents, and I bet you that, that yours did the same as my grandfather did. My grandfather had a few dairy cows, and he would grow peas, and he would grow corn, and the, the manure from the dairy cows went out there, or the dairy cows would go out there after the, after the peas were harvested, and they would glean the fields, and the manure would mm-hmm. be there, and he would rotate crops, you know, with the barley, the buckwheat, the corn, um, the peas... And the soil was just rich and wonderful. And he didn't have to worry about things like that. No, it's so funny. I have to tell you, I had a five-year-old approach me once, and she said, I said, what's your favorite food, little girl? And she says, it's my Kraft macaroni and cheese. And then she says to me, how do I grow that? And it was, <laughs> it was hysterical because it shows the example. When I was five years old, I would never have said that because I knew what vegetables were and where they were grown from. You know, what, where they really came from was a knowledge base that was common when I was a kid. Here, these days, people don't know that. They think that chicken comes from a package and that vegetables... Uh, you know, grow differently. They don't know. And so that's part of what I do. When I'm, I might be talking about growing a cocktail garden and how you might add herbs to a cocktail, but ultimately I'm teaching people where those plants come from and how they can grow them themselves. And we should have more people trying to do this because we need to be more connected with the food that we eat. We certainly do. And I would like to encourage all of our listeners, if you garden, and of course most of you do, or if you want to garden, as some of you do, um, share it with somebody. Ask questions. If you see somebody with a garden, ask how they do it. If you see a kid walking down the street, um, try to bring them in. I mean, you know, not like a mugger or something like that, but <laughs> let them pick a flower or snip a flower and let them hold it and sniff it. Or give them a cherry tomato when you see them out walking with their parents and, and you know, the parents say it's okay. Because kids don't know where this is coming from. No, they really don't, and I do that. I have a garden behind my fence that's about 200 feet long, and it's primarily uh, drought-tolerant and native plants. And uh, when I'm out working, I get hugs all the time. My neighbors stop and hug me. I don't even know them. You know, I don't know them from Adam, and yet um, they feel a connection with my garden. And it's not about me. It's about seeing plants flowering. It's about feeling what nature is really about. And the kids are more interested than the adults are, truly. They want a tour of the entire garden, so I walk them inside and all around. And we really focus on what are the important things about nature. And then I ask them if they're growing a garden. And 90% of the time, they aren't. Next year, they come by. Guess what? Most of the people that I ask that question to are now trying to grow a garden. I think we need to encourage. Yes, I think we need to encourage 
our neighbors and other people say, well, you can do it, and I can help you if you need help. And I do that over and over. Uh, sometimes I give people plants because, you know, plant sharing is the way to go. when you <laughs> If you have a pile of perennials, yeah, right? I have perennials, I need to share them. So darn it, uh, here, have a free plant. And people get very excited about that. And we, of course, put a personification on those plants. You know, that's Susie's plant. She gave it to me, and it means so much to me. That's my grandmother's peonies. Uh, they mean everything to me. So I think um, when you start connecting people with growing, then they start feeling uh, that personification that uh, it's not just a plant. It's about people and community and growing. It's so important. And that's my goal, uh, my, my real goal about social good, is trying to teach people that making a difference is pretty easy to do. It's about sharing and caring within your neighborhood. Shauna, I am so delighted to hear that. Um, after hearing all the bad things about, quote, the younger generation, um, about being selfish and things like that, I am just so tickled to see people like you and like Bree Arthur and Joe. Of course, Joe is a little closer to my age, but, but out there sharing and caring and doing all the things that we thought we could do in the 60s. It didn't work out so well for a lot of us. And I was able to continue gardening. I was very fortunate, but so many um, just went into the corporate world and kind of left all of that community behind. Right, right. And and I'm delighted to see it coming back. Oh, that makes me feel so happy. Um, When I first started doing this, I received a lot of criticism. People thought I was crazy. Um, And it pretty much told me to my face, you know, this is ridiculous. You're never going to get anywhere with this. And there's no way you can ever make a living doing good. Not like this. It's not going to happen. Well, I'm writing. (laughs) And how many people have you watched watched your YouTube videos? (laughs) I have over a million views on YouTube. and, And what's happened is, of course, you know, all of that negativity I ignored. Ignore the naysayers. If you believe you can do something, you should put your foot forward and really do it. And uh, I thought all that. And what's happened is it, something I didn't expect. Number one, uh, on a selfish level, it totally changed my life. You know, my life is nothing like it was before. It's enriched and better and happier because I have a garden believe it or not. And um, the second thing that's happened is the thousands of people that have said, I want to do something to make a difference too. They write me letters. They send me notes. They call me on the phone. And they're really connected with the concept of making a difference. And isn't that what we should all be doing is trying to help each other to do that? So that it became a theme on my, my blog site. You know, I say making a difference every day. Uh, because I want more people to do it, and it's been great. I love it. And I think a lot of people think they have to do something big and magnificent, and if they can't do something big and magnificent, they don't do anything. But you're showing them that you can do a little thing, and that little thing, if lots of people are doing one little thing, which is exactly one little thing. Heck, you can't go all organic. Well, just get organic eggs for your family. You know, one of the major sustainable things I did in my life is I gave up paper towels. I know it sounds crazy, but it took me a year to do it. <laughs> like breaking the paper towel addiction was like this horrible uh, drama in my life. And we did it. And uh, it's a simple thing. It was just one thing. But it, it, when you start adding all those things together, that's when you get results. Yeah. I, it, that 
paper towel thing strikes a real chord with me because my mother was one of these people that she would she would use a paper towel five or six times. She would dry it off and use it again. <laughs> exactly. and, and of course. Of course, I do the same thing, too, because sometimes you just want to use a paper towel because it's icky. And you know it's going to be like turmeric if you're making pickles. You know that's going to stain and it's going to be hard to get out of your towel. So use a paper towel for it. But for most everything else, unless it's all greasy or nasty, why not? Just exactly. You know, people it live works. for eons with no paper towels. Surprising. <laughs> I know, and here we are, and here I am having my struggle. But it's been years now, and four years without paper towels. I feel like a recovering drug addict, addict to be frank. <laughs> it's, it was huge. It was really hard to do. And uh, But I wanted to show people, too, that, you know, I, I think that if you're going to teach about sustainability, you should be living it. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect, but you have to try. And so that was one of my big efforts to try, and I'm really happy with the results. We have to take a little break right now, but we'll come back and we'll talk about more about trying and other things that you've done right after this. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Quick stakes. That's Q-U-I-K steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quicksteak.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick steaks, Q-U-I-K steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's FoodLink was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. FeedstuffsFoodLink.com, connecting farm to fork. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Shauna Coronado. And Shauna, right before the break, we were talking about empowering people and making changes. One of the changes that you've been trying to make is with 
um, community-owned property or town-owned property. A lot mm-hmm. of our listeners have had problems with homeowners associations, and of course, some have had problems with city ordinances and stuff. Tell us about your experience. <laughs> I've had problems with it all. <laughs> uh, so funny. So the first issue that I had was that garden I was talking about behind my fence. I thought it was on, I I truly believed I had planted it on Eastman property. Eastman property is when it's owned by yourself, but it is also, uh, you know, taken by the city if they need that space. What I found out is that I actually planted it on right-of-way. Right-of-way is like that space that's between the sidewalk and the street, that grass strip. It's owned by the city, not by you although you have to maintain it, which seems like a conflict, but that's a whole other story. Uh, The right-of-way area is also the area that's around major streets, and it's usually behind your easement and near the sidewalk. Well, it just so happens that um, health strip gardening is usually done on easement. Health strip is that area that's between the sidewalk and the street that uh, can't grow anything. In a major city, it's usually filled with gravel, or grass that looks horrid. And so lots of people around the United States are taking over their Eastman areas, planting them up, and making it look beautiful. Now, the controversy is, you're like, why is there controversy over this, right? We want more people to grow beautiful. The issue is that cities say, hey, that's my property, not yours. So who's going to maintain that property if the weeds get out of hand? Or what if we don't approve of the plant material that you put there? For example, if you would put a giant bush right next to the street, it would block traffic, okay? So my problem came in. Uh, I don't have – my garden is not near the street, uh, behind my fence anyway. It is, you know, on the other side of the sidewalk. So I never would have believed that I would have had a problem with the city. The city fined me for that space and told me that I needed to complete a report to give to them in order for them to know what was planted there, how it was grown, and if I changed what was grown out there, they would find me again, that I had to leave it like it was. Okay, so here comes the issue. The issue is that in my community, I have mixed ethnic heritages. Some people that don't speak English... Uh, and we're not arguing this, the point that all people should or should not speak English here. That's another topic for another day. But the people that don't speak English, there's no way they could have written a 10-page report like I had to to submit to the city in order to get approval to grow vegetables to feed their family in our community. So my point that I went to uh, WGN News with was why are we not allowing more people to grow vegetables in viable areas when we have people that are losing their homes because they can't afford to feed their families and live in the homes? They should be able to grow vegetables wherever we darn well can to support our society. When I brought this forward, the city was enraged. I mean, they were really angry with me. And WGN News, did a feature that was an evening primetime feature that went national, uh, focused on that concept of where should we grow and where shouldn't we. 
And so it really brought a lot of people up and out of the woodwork. You know, people came to my blog site, thousands of people, and left comments. Uh, they were very riled up, either pro or against the concept. And it really, uh, what it did was made people start talking about what's, what is better for our communities. Should they be able to grow more vegetables in more places? And so that's part of, uh, I didn't intend to cause trouble with my city. Never thought it would ever happen. It just so happens that it did make people upset. And so it was a hot point, and it became uh, an area of conversation. Now, what I would recommend that people do, if you know that you have an easement or right-of-way area that you would like to grow on, the first thing I would do is go to my city and, and my homeowners association and ask permission. Ask it very, very nicely. They might charge you to do the growing, which is a pain in the neck, uh, uh, but I think uh, that if you come forward first, you'll have more success than I did in just planting the garden and expecting everybody to conform. That's not how it works. A lot of people come at it from the standpoint of, well, if I ask, then they're going to know about it, and then I might get into trouble, or they might say no mm-hmm. first. And it's and they kind of have the idea of, you know, do it and ask forgiveness I'm later. Forgiveness, yes. And uh, that, uh, I'm not against that idea because obviously that's what I thought was going on with me. I didn't think there would be a problem. However, the risk is that the city owns the property so they can sue you or fine you or, you know, hold you up in court over a garden. And that so you have to decide if the risk is worth it or not for you. For me, uh, I didn't ever think I'd be in court or anything like that. Uh, I did what they told me to do. I paid the fine. They let me keep the garden, and I did submit the 10-page report. But I st- I did it under duress because I felt that the community this wasn't good for the community whatsoever. I, the garden is good, but the concept of having to apply in this fashion makes it difficult for people who don't uh, speak English well or who might be elderly who don't know how to write a report like that. Yeah, I think a lot of people in government just assume that everyone, you know, can deal with all the legalese. And even for a person with a, a really good education, that's not always the truth. And, and some people are so intimidated by anything government um, that they're afraid to, they would be afraid to do that anyway. I'm glad you were there to champion for them. And I'm, yeah. I'm delighted to see that in many cities now, there are groups and individuals that have gone and gotten the rules changed. Mm-hmm. I wish that that would happen in my city. I definitely tried and uh, it fell on deaf ears. So, you know, the irony here is that I don't think I would have done any of this, any of the, the blog, writing books, uh, doing gardening as, uh, you know, as, as a professional speaking living, none of this would have happened if I hadn't had that garden behind the fence. It became my passion because it really impressed growing upon the community and beautified the community and made a difference here. So for me, uh, it was the the fire that started everything. So in the strange way, the city doesn't want it to be there, and yet that's where all my passion has been channeled from. So it's an important thing that happened 
and an experience to champion for others. I, I would do it again, time and again, uh, trying to help other people grow in their communities because I think it's truly made a difference in mine. And the people liked your garden. So people, you know, I read yeah. your blog and I read the comments, and people loved looking at your garden, and they loved looking at your fence. Tell people about your fence. Oh, uh, the fence was the homeowners association. So a gangbanger kid of uh, some kind came along and spray-painted gang symbols on my fence. If they had spray-painted spray any other kind of graffiti, I would have let it go. But when you have a gang symbol, that means it's a territory mark. So they were marking my home and my fence as their territory. That made me angry. And that's not what, you know, uh, graffiti, regular graffiti can be handled in its own way. But the gang territory thing shook me up. So I decided that uh, I'd go do research on it and find out in major cities around the United States how they've combated that, that problem. And what I found out is that if you paint a beautiful picture over the gang symbols, then the gangs will not touch those, that wall again because it's art. And so they'll leave it alone for the most part. And so that became my experiment. We don't handle graffiti very well in my little town. And, yes, it's a small town, but we still have graffiti issues. Now, like, what if I painted the fence with a beautiful painting? Would that eliminate the problem? You know, would anyone try to paint over it again? How would that all work? It would be an experiment, and we'd check it out. My goal was two years of living with the fence to see if it would last without being graffitied again. So I painted the fence. I actually had a friend of mine, Peter, who's quite the incredible artist, painted my fence. It was rainbows and flowers and uh, native insects, like butterflies. It was beautiful. And uh, the... Once again, the public came out. The Homeowners Association was not a fan of it. They wanted me to paint it white over the top of the painting because it didn't meet the Homeowners Association codes. I never even thought, again, one, one more time, I never even thought of asking permission from anyone because it was my sin. So I didn't think I needed to. Uh, and it turns out that the Homeowners Association members were very riled up about it. And when I went to talk to them about it at one of their meetings, there was shouting involved. And uh, people came with me to support me at the meeting. They were very upset uh, that the painting was, they were telling me to take the painting down. The city had an issue with it because they felt at, the, at first I had to make a diff in the word. Uh, they felt that was trying to represent my business. And so they then started charging me for having a business that I ran out of my house. <laughs> I know. And asked me to change it. So now what it says is grow community. Okay. So the Homeowners Association started finding me $30 a month. I, being a professional writer, I don't make a lot of money. And so I went to the public and I had a call out for more people to help support me. And so we got enough fines for two years paid. So it's $30 a month for two years. In exchange for that, I featured people on the blog. It was a great exchange. Then the Homeowners Association said, well, this is not working. We have to get rid of this dreadful painting. And so they upped the fees to $100 a month. 
Well, my feeling is $100 a month is it, it would feed a family in a third world nation for Pete's sake. That's a huge mm-hmm. waste of money. I just disagree with it. And so uh, we turned the fence around built a new fence, and the, the painted fence is now on the inside of my garden. And we put a totally new fence up. Uh, I made a think of it online because I wanted people to know what had happened. And um, I then the remaining funds that I had left over, I split between three not-for-profit associations in the area. And so uh, good came to the fence. You know, being able to share the monies with people that needed it, that was great. But the bad that came from the fence was uh, we still don't have a solution for graffiti in our community that really works. And I, I, it was a very frustrating experience overall. And so uh, my, at the end of all this, my husband says, seriously, why must you cause trouble? And <laughs> He's like, oh, gosh, please stop causing trouble. And it, what, what it comes down to is that so few people will stand up for something that they believe in like this. And I felt that it was important to the community to try to find an alternative solution that might work. So I applaud you for that. We've got to take a little break right now, but we'll be back talking more about this and some of the other things that you're doing right after this. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is author, photographer, TV personality, and, oh, wow, absolutely amazing woman, Shauna Coronado. <laughs> and and, and Shauna, I don't have to, I'm not, I'm not fibbing when I say amazing woman. Even the Chicago Tribune thought you were an amazing oh. woman. You, yeah, you I was got, honored to be, yes. You got the Remarkable Woman Award. Yes, I'm very honored for that. That was just wonderful. And um, it's, it's wonderful to see that people really do care about community. When at, at, After all the struggles that I've had, I felt so few people cared. And in the end, I found out that it's just the opposite. People really want to uh, support someone who's making a difference and make a difference themselves. 
So it's a good thing. They do. And, Shauna, people can see the fence that you're talking about in your backyard garden, the one that's <laughs> in the my backyard, yes. Yeah, send me a note, and I will give you a tour, and you can see that painted fence. And it's and your website is Shauna Coronado. If you would, dot com, if you'd like to spell it for people, and then we'll repeat it before the end of the program. And, of course, I will put it up on our Facebook page for people. Absolutely. It's shawnacoronado.com, which is S-H-A-W-N-A-C-O-R-O-N-A-D-O.com. That's simple enough. Now, I mentioned, Shauna, that you are also an author, and you've got several books out. Tell people, and, and tell people about your very first book. Let's shock them, shall we? Oh, let's shock them. My very first book that I wrote is called Gardening Nude. I know. No, it's not really about being naked in your garden. It's about green lifestyle living. And it was a big splash into uh, the the concept of writing books for me. So I really, it's focused mostly on uh, how to live greener. And it gives all kinds of tips. Um, The last the, the most recent books that I've been writing are all focused on gardening. Um, two of them are regional. So they, I know that you're based out of uh, California, correct? I'm in Atlanta. Atlanta. Oh, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I thought you were in California. Right. Um, but it, so it might not apply to your viewers, but Illinois Getting Started Garden Guide and the Illinois Getting Started Garden Guide. Um, what's important about these regional books is I focus on no... It's a mainstream book that's sold at all the big box stores and the garden centers, but it's all organic, even though it's not labeled that way. And I think that's important because we want to just teach people to grow the way that they should be growing. Then I have a new book coming out in February. You can go on the Amazon and pre-buy it. For peace sakes, go do it. It's a Grow a Living Wall. And I teach people how to create vertical gardens that have a purpose, that are either feeding you, are good for uh, cocktail gardens, are uh, perfect for pollinators. They're all ideas for living walls that you can grow on balconies and in small areas. So I would love for people to go take a look at that. Well, and I'm sure they will. We have listeners all over the United States, and we have some in other countries, too. So even though your books are for, for Midwest, they're applicable to a number of our listeners, so that's not a problem. Um, tell me about, you mentioned gardening. It's not about Naked Gardening Day or anything like that. And for those uh-uh. of our listeners that, that, that don't know, there actually is a worldwide Naked Gardening Day. It's about getting rid of the excess, isn't it? Tell us it is. More. That's it. Um, my first book was about getting rid of um, all those chemicals in your life and doing something better with it. It's just what we've been describing in our conversation here. Um, trying to uh, teach people to, you know, in the wintertime, all of us get a little depressed. We don't have enough sunlight. Um, this is a time when we tend to put on weight, and it's not necessarily because we're getting less exercise. It's also because we feel dark, darker. We're not getting enough light exposure. So teaching people how to be out in nature, get more sunlight directly to our eyeballs, it actually stimulates the brain, and it encourages uh, people to have an elevated mood. We need an elevated mood to help cheer us through our days and uh, live better. So I encourage people to take a look at the first book. But my favorite book coming out is actually Grow a Living Wall because it's a national book. Yeah, it's a national book. I'm so excited about it because 
I started out, I'm standing in a garden center, and I'm holding a window box. It's 24 inches by 7 inches, and I realized it is a square foot. I put, it's a little over a square foot, actually. And I set it down on the ground. And I'm like, imagine if I put five or six of these on top of one another, I could grow 40 plants in a less than a square foot area on the ground. This would open up gardening to balcony owners, to small patio people all across the world. This could be a new way of growing if we taught the everyday person how to grow in a window box style or a pocket style garden. And so that was the premise for the book. And I can't wait to see what happens with it. It's, it's really exciting. And the photographs are great. I planted over 2,000 plants in June and had them grow, photograph them all in living walls across the region. It's so exciting. Now, what kinds of plants are you growing in your, your living wall? Well, when you're talking about vegetables, uh, green leafy vegetables grow great in small spaces. So a giant tomato that's indeterminate is not going to be your pal in a living wall. Um, but kale does marvelous in a living wall. We were talking about that. Uh, there are many fruits and roots that do great in a living wall. Uh, but if you have a full shade area, it's quite easy to grow a full shade vegetable garden using a living wall system. And uh, rather fantastic, actually. I grow beets in full shade, not for the beetroot, but for the leaf. So imagine a garden that has burgundies and greens and blue from kale in it. It can be very colorful. And uh, a smaller space is just a bonus. You know, it's great to be able to grow in shade. People think you can't grow anything in shade, and it's true that you can't grow a zucchini or a tomato very well in shade. You'll get a lot of foliage, but that's the whole point of getting growing foliage plants in the shade, the, the lettuces and things. And my, my experience with living walls here in Georgia has been a little difficult because it took me a while to catch on, well, first off, that growing down south, since I'm from Illinois originally and lived in New Jersey, down south is a whole different part of the world. Mm -hmm. Things that would grow in the sun up north um, would just turn up their toes here in full sun. Yes. And then you add to that to the smaller space of a container and put that in the sun. You mentioned not liking to water. And, yeah, you can get away with, you know, using drip systems and stuff like that. But still, the amount of heat that's surrounding these plants in full shade makes it really tough. I mean, I've had lantana wilt in, in a vertical <laughs> You know, my, one of my secrets that I give away in the book is I tell people what soil combinations to put in their, their living wall container system that okay, will actually hold that. water. Well, my, one of my secrets is that you remember we were talking about rotted manure. Um, uh-huh. One part potting soil, one part rotted manure, and one part traditional compost. Now, a, a horticulturist would say, my God, woman, that's way too heavy of a soil. Uh, it's absolutely perfect when you're in drought. You know, it holds the water swimmingly and does great. Um, there's other tricks, like adding compost tea actually seems to help make the plants more drought-worthy. So, therefore, there's, here's the secret for Grow a Living Wall. No weeding. So you can have an entire garden that takes up 10 square feet of fit and one little square foot and no weeding, and you only have to water it. I, you can't beat it. That's the easiest garden on earth. <laughs> and of. people can do this on a, an apartment balcony, too, can't they? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. So it makes it accessible for people that have never grown a traditional garden before to start growing. And once again, that's our message. Try to get more people to think about the foods that they're eating and how we can improve uh, the exposure to nature. I think it's when I was a newlywed. We lived in a little second-floor walk-up apartment. It was really tiny. It had lots of windows, so I could grow a lot of things in, in on the windowsills. But it was really small, and I had been used to, you know, wide-open spaces in suburbia. Um, so the first thing I had to do, of course, was to start growing things. And it was just such a joy to me to go out to our front steps and, you know, pick something for dinner, whether it was a you know, a tiny tim tomato or lettuce or parsley or something just to get out there and go snip, snip, snip or or look at it on my way in from work and say, aha, that vase looks gorgeous and snip it and bring it in for dinner. And you're helping people to be able to do that with the with the vertical garden. Now, do you use woolly pockets or pots or what do you do for your well, vertical garden? Uh, we use many different living wall systems in the book. Woolly pockets is one of them, but there's also many other plastic and non-plastic container systems that are out there. Growproducts.com has a great window box system where you can make it standalone and you don't have to drill it into the wall. That's really fantastic for apartment dwellers because they might not be able to drill something into the wall because of the rules of their apartment building. Sure. And, but it still stands straight up, and it stands about five feet high, and it sits in a very narrow area. So imagine coming home from work and being able to snip off a couple herbs for a cocktail. You can have a little cocktail party right there on your balcony. It would be fantastic. I'm all for the herbal martini. <laughs> They seem to be very popular these days. We we only have a couple of minutes left, but if you have, um, I want to put you on the spot. If you had just one bit of advice for our listeners, what would it be? I think um, when you're talking about gardening and doing it sustainably, the secret is always the soil. Uh, You don't have to have a garden that's turned over regularly, but what you do need to do is build those microbes up. So find ways to add natural ingredients to your soil, and you'll have a successful garden. That's good advice for everybody. Um, We have talked a couple of times on the show about Monticello and Thomas Jefferson, and, Mm -hmm. and of course, one of his quotes talks about uh, a fellow gardener's problems with gardening, and it was due to the leanness of their soil. Mm -hmm. And it is just absolutely so true. Shauna, you said you've got this new book coming out. You've got several books out there. You've got the, um, the books on gardening um, for the Midwest, for Indiana and Illinois. What else do you have out there? Um, I'd say that most significantly is the social media that I have going on. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Google+. I have large followings, and we are very active. I'm out there every single day talking to people, and, and really we talk about gardening, but we also talk about fun stuff that is more personal, like uh, like cocktails or culinary. And uh, my focus is trying to build fun relationships with people out there. So please come join me on social media. Uh, if you're a social media nut like I am, I would love to have you as a part of my, my game. And can they get to all those places through your website? Absolutely. Just go to shawnacoronado.com and you can find me. That's wonderful. I'll be putting that all up on Facebook. I know some of you don't do Facebook, and that's okay. You can go to 
Shauna, yes, I know. <laughs> but you can go to shaunacoronado.com, or if you can't remember how to spell um, Shauna's name, you can uh, write to me in care of America's Web Radio. If you go to America's Web Radio, right where you're listening to the show right now, um, you'll find a link to email the show, and, and we'll get all that information for you. Shauna, thank you so much for being a, with us this week. I hope you will come and talk to us some more when your new book comes out. And that's going to be, what, April? It'll be more like March, the beginning March. of March. And thank you so much for having me. I loved it. Okay. That's all the time we have for today, but we'll be back talking more gardening next week on America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I hope you'll join us. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.